Hi, my name is Dan Shaw Bell, and I'm on the Chris Smith Culture Matters podcast. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Chris Smith and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode 107 and uh, our guest today is Dan Chabelle. Dan Chabelle is a New York Times bestselling author, partner and research director at Future Workplace and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. He's the host of Five Questions with Dan Chabelle a podcast where he interviews a variety of world-class humans by asking them five questions in less than 10 minutes. Dan's new book is called Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. We talk all about technology and how it's being used in the world these days. And uh, Dan comes up with a number of really interesting examples, uh, typically from Japan, from France, from the UK. So definitely uh, stick around for those examples. They're really fantastic. And then let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Dan, good morning or good afternoon. Um, how are you? Excellent. No complaints here in New York City. No, no complaints in New York City. Okay, it's good that you mentioned that because that is part of my first question, my introduction question. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? I mean, you know yourself. I know you a little bit. Um, and some of the audience might actually know you as well. But tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you come from, where are you now? That's New York City. You revealed that already. And what would you consider uh, your so-called cultural frame of reference? you got about Great. 10 minutes for this one. I'm going to get some coffee in the meantime. No, that's <laughs> not true. No. <laughs> Great question. So I've been working since I was 13, first internship in high school. I'm originally from Boston. So a lot of my first internships and work experience were at small companies in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Mm -hmm. And I was always a very hard worker. I would go above and beyond what I was hired to do. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, early in life, I was doing jobs that I wasn't passionate about, but that trained me how to deal with people. I think right. everyone in the world should have at least one service job where you're servicing other people because you, that is the most important skill is, uh -huh. is connecting with others, understanding what they're going through, empathizing and being able to work with them for a common cause. Yeah. And so my first job ever when I was 13 was a caterer at my temple uh -huh. and I was doing bar mitzvahs and weddings and and Shabbat dinners, and I had to deal with very difficult people. And so I learned so much from that. And I was serving them, I was cleaning up afterwards, I was greeting them, I was doing things that made me kind of uncomfortable as an introvert, but I forced myself to do that. And it was a great work experience. And then right. fast forward to summer uh, of senior year of high school, when I had my first internship, I was selling phone auditing services 
to okay. governments and schools and companies. And I don't I don't even know what that means still. <laughs> but I was doing it. I had a script and I closed zero sales. Right. And I was sitting next to customer service and they always were chain smoking. And so it was like really depressing. But I learned that I didn't want to cold call. And therefore, yeah. you know, throughout the rest of my career, I'm like, how do I not cold call? And that's why I became really good at uh, PR and content marketing because I saw it as a necessity mm-hmm. to getting yourself out there and building a business in the future. So then in college, nothing's come easy. So I applied early decision to a college and I didn't get in for the first time around. So I really was stressed out because I, that was the only school I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wrote a letter to admissions. I interviewed on campus. I got straight A's my last semester of high school. Like I marketed myself without saying I was marketing myself. That was what I was doing. I was selling myself really hard because I really wanted to go there. Mm -hmm. And I find I eventually got in. And so that was the first time when things weren't easy and I had to work really hard for it. And then I, I felt very privileged to be there and that school was paid for me. So I worked really hard during school. I was a leader in seven organizations. I had seven more internships. But, you know, there were struggles, right? Like even getting an internship at Reebok, it took me over a year to get it, right? Because they at these big companies, they give the internships to the sons and daughters of executives. And so mm. I had to work extra hard to get it. But I eventually got it. And when I didn't get it the first time, to me, no doesn't mean never. It means come back with a stronger value proposition the right. next time around. So I had multiple other internships. I was building up my resume to be so strong that eventually things would work out and they did mm. and and then even g- when I graduated I thought things were going to be easy I had a two-page resume even though people should say you should have one like mm. but my resume was so strong better than anyone else in my school and yet it took me eight months meeting 15 people for three different positions to get a, a job when I graduated now I applied to other companies so it was probably 40 plus interviews overall but like mm-hmm. for this company I was z- like like my school that that I went to mm-hmm. I only wanted to work for EMC which is now EMC Dell I didn't want I you know I applied to other companies but that was more for my parents right I okay. I, I, I knew exactly what I wanted and that's the through line for my whole career nothing's come easy I always persevered and I always know what I want and I invest all of my energy to do that mm-hmm. whereas you see so many people they'll apply for a thousand different jobs and then they might not hear back or they end up getting a job they don't want like I know what I want because yeah. I already do the homework and everything's organic so I got that job and the last set of interviews was the most impactful probably in my life where uh, the last person interviewed me he looked at my resume and he went all the way down and saw Reebok and he's like oh my god like tell me about Reebok and I really didn't do much at Reebok right mm-hmm. like, you're an intern there you're doing administrative work whereas some of the other internships I was getting so much experience mm-hmm. But Reebok was a brand and through the association of working and aligning myself with a brand that mattered mm-hmm. and that helped me get my first job out of school. Mm-hmm. And once that once I saw how important branding was, it impacted how I viewed the world for the rest of my life. And so eventually for this yourself, led me that to is, that, that's what it for myself. Yeah. yeah. Personal branding was my original platform yeah. and what people probably know me as still. And so I, you know, was starting a blog. I started a blog called Driven to Succeed in 2006 and I was just writing 12 articles a day or 12 articles a week sorry mm-hmm. constantly writing constantly getting ideas out because people who I went to school with and others were asking me you know how do you get internships how do you get jobs mm-hmm. and so for me it was like oh my god like I can help them do this because I've 
already done it before. I have the roadmap. Yeah. And it, of course, it's hard work. It's creativity. I would walk into interviews with a CD portfolio of work. And, and I age myself by saying the word CD. Mm. Um, a business card, a website. I, I created all the materials to help sell me as a brand. I called it self-marketing in college. Mm. Yeah. And then fast forward to March 20, uh, 2000, 2007, mm-hmm. I read an article called The Brand Called You in mm-hmm. Fast Company Magazine. Right. And it was published 10 years before I read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Tom Peters, who created the business book genre yeah. because of his book In Search of Excellence, which yeah. you might be familiar with. Yeah, yes. And I, I read it, and it was all the validation I needed. Mm. And my whole life flashed before my eyes. I'm like, wow, I'm this is what I've been doing all along is building my personal brand mm. using all these new technologies and even you know interviews before social media came about. And I could be this voice for the next generation. There's no question. I've already figured out how to market myself. I've already have, you know, case studies and ways of in which I operate and how I think. Mm-hmm. I can really start putting myself out there. And so I turned Driven to Succeed into personalbrandingblog.com. Mm-hmm. And then it was just working really hard. So between, you know, March 2007 and uh, November 2007, I was writing 12 articles a week still, but I also launched Personal Branding Magazine, Personal Branding TV, the Personal Brand Awards. Mm-hmm. This was while having a full-time job. So we're talking 100 to 120 hours of work per week. Wow. I would wake up, so nights and weekends, sacrifice for the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during the day, I was an employee at EMC. Mm-hmm. And Fast Company profiled me a week after they profiled Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Workweek, and they said, you know, Dan is the Young Turks of personal branding, and look at all the stuff he's done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had no idea how important or valuable media was. Mm -hmm. I didn't. You know, I was blogging. I kind of understood that, you know, commenting on blogs and making connections was important, but I had no clue that one media hit would ha- would have such an impact in my life. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was curious though. So I was pitching for it. I was going for it. They didn't just randomly contact me. Like I was creating a whole campaign to get them to write about me mm-hmm. out of curiosity because mm-hmm. I, I was curious to see if that would actually translate into something. And it did. I was invited to speak at Google's headquarters as a 23-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, EMC had no idea what I was doing inside of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, outside of work until Mm -hmm. that article mentioned that I work for EMC. So I was recruited internally to be the first social media person in the whole company, Mm -hmm. 42,000 people back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and that was based on the personal brand I was developing outside of work. And so what's awesome is that in Tom Peter's article, he said the smartest people would create a a unique position for themselves within their current companies and leverage the resources they have within that company. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. So it, it came to that article almost came to life for me. Mm-hmm. And I was profiled 10 years to the day when the article was published. So that was kind of a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And I was recruited to be the first social media person. And I remember because I worked so hard to get in the company, I went to the head of PR who hired me. And I was like, you know, here's an article I just wrote for Brand Week magazine. Like I was really trying to impress him. I had a whole, I had a whole, uh, you know, portfolio of work. I mm-hmm. had a press kit. I was trying to blow him away, but he was already sold through that fast company article, which mm-hmm. I thought was really fascinating. So I created one of the first social media positions ever in a fortune 200 company back then. And I was writing their own rules. Like even, even on my job description, it still said like PR specialist because it like, it was too complicated to change it in their system. Yeah. That's how early it was in 2007. Yeah. I, and then I stayed there until 
you know, early 2010. Uh, along the way, again, I was continuing to work hard outside of work, but also make a big impact at work. Uh, and eventually, I got a book deal by myself. 70 out of 70 agents rejected me, and two publishers said no. I got it. Um, it was, the first book was called Me 2.0. It was the first book on how to use social media to build your career. Mm-hmm. And, and it really helps people get their first job out of school. That's really the mm-hmm. crux of it because that's what I had known at that point in time. And then that trans, translated into speaking gigs, and that's what allowed me to leave the company, start my own company called Millennial Branding, which was originally a personal branding coaching and consulting firm. Right, mm-hmm. I'd work with executives and celebrities and all sorts of people on building their own personal brand through the new mediums. Right, you know, because I was early on all of them. I was one of the early people to write about LinkedIn, Facebook, everything on how to use those platforms to build a personal brand. I literally own personalbranding.com. I've been doing this for so long, but like now everyone's talking about it, which I think is pretty Mm -hmm. interesting. But yeah, so I've been doing it for a while and then I shifted because I saw that, you know, I could create content to support my generation, inspire them, but also be somebody to improve workplaces Mm -hmm. and, and really be the advisor of companies and the supporter and champion of people by age because they needed help, right? The bad economy, the recession, you know, I was there to help them figure out a new path. And that new path was using new mediums in order to own your career instead of, you know, hope things happen hope is not a good career strategy that's that's what you learn when you're when you're growing up and figuring yeah. things out like things don't just come to you you have to build something you have yeah, exactly. to really hard. if you don't have a and plan then, you'll fit in somebody else's plan yeah and then my story is just it's been about you know book comes out start a company you know uh then the, the next book was called promote yourself so that helps you go from first job to management so mm-hmm. i did a whole study with american express on what managers are looking for when promoting because I was I myself was curious and it was all soft skills right it's about right, yeah. you know the ability to prioritize work teamwork skills and communication skills mm. um, and so that book did really well and then now and then I started a research company after that called WorkplaceTrends.com and then that was acquired three years ago uh, so now I'm a research director and partner at Future Workplace. Mm-hmm. And we do four conferences a year for HR executives, research. We have an artificial intelligence course. We're doing a, a lot of different things. Right. And then the new book is called Back to Human. It's a leadership book with a twist, right? And so like 40% of people my age have a manager title and above. I thought right now is the best time to release a book like this. But mm-hmm. also the the crux of the book is that people my age and most generations, I think most people would admit it at this at this point in time overuse or misuse technology can i can i I then for for the note in the margin ask your age then yeah i'm turning 35 on september 14th okay 35 okay well at least that gives people a a reference when you talk about generations because only listening to the voice is hard to actually establish a a, an age nowadays um all right that's a that's a massive introduction uh, i must say but it gives us a very clear picture there's one part that i'm still curious about is um what would what do you consider you being your cultural frame of reference yes my cultural frame of reference is a jewish american growing up in newton massachusetts uh and then i didn't really travel growing up so i think traveling is so important to Uh understanding cultures and where you fit in the world and so Back about, I think, eight or nine years ago, I started really traveling. So Japan, and I've been asked to speak in like Brazil. So I think my career has led me to be more culturally aware. Yeah. Because otherwise, like I grew up with a lot of fear. My my mom hates to travel. You know, she's (laughs) never even been to Israel, uh, whereas a lot of her peers have, right? 
you know, even through birthright, I think most people have. I just went a few years ago because, you know, she didn't want to travel. So that kind of limited my travel a little bit growing up. Uh, I hate using that as an excuse because, you know, it's partially self-inflicted too. Um, but I would say over the eight, eight or nine years, you know, I've been to enough places where I feel a good sense of what's going on. And I really care even more about, you know, helping people not just in America, but outside of America, like my research for this book, yeah. I partnered with Virgin Pulse, which is one of the 400 Virgin brands owned by Richard Branson. And we interviewed over 2000 managers and employees in 10 countries. So and you're you talking know. about back to you in this case. And back to human. Yep. Right. And so this is, you know, Australia, Singapore, India, China, you know, Brazil, all over, which has been great. And so I like that because now since I have a better sense of these places because I've been there, mm-hmm. you know, the research becomes more relevant and I appreciate it more as a yeah. result. Okay. It makes good sense. It's, it's the, um, uh, I have, I usually don't prepare that much for uh, a podcast. That's not because I'm lazy, but I, I prefer to go with the flow. Uh, and so I've, I've picked up on the flow of this, of your introduction is that, um, in, in the early, early 2000s, 2008, I mean, technology, it seems like, like, like a lifetime ago in terms of technology. It's gone so fast. It's amazing. Uh, true. Uh, but you have used technology to create your career, if you want, like in personal branding, right? Uh, Mr. PR, uh, Mr. Personal Branding as well. You used a lot of technology for that. If I, and you sent me a book, this, it's, it's right here if you want to see the cover. Hey! It's right there. Back to Human, um, by Dan Sh- uh, Chabelle, I should say. That's the accent is, uh, is different than that. That was an would... awesome correction, by the way. You almost made the same mistake as I know. most of the pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to, I had to practice on this. I did it three days. No. Um, so the book is here and the book is back to you. It's called Back to Human. Now, how is, is that, is that a full th- 360 degrees for yeah, you? Yeah, you nailed it. I love that. That's exactly how people are starting to describe it. It's the pendulum has swung all the way with web 2.0 and now it's swinging back. You know, we, yeah. I, I believe that like that, that being online and building a personal brand helped me so much. I mean, it's the crux of my career. It gave me a competitive advantage, exactly. allowed me to connect with so many people. Yeah. But over, over the years since then, I've, you know, promote yourself was all about soft skills. Yeah. 40, 40 pages out of the 280 page book was soft skills. And that ranked the most in terms of importance when managers are looking for whom to promote. Hmm. And so that started to push me into this direction. And then here's what really happened is mm-hmm. I was interviewed for a documentary called the revolution generation, which is going to come out in 2019. Mm-hmm. And it's a gener- it's a portrait of the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. And I was asked for two and a, two and a half hours. What's the biggest challenge for the generation? And I went through global warming, uh, income inequality, you know, the big issues, student loan debt, right. world yeah. war. And then I, I fell into isolation. I'm like, wow, we are overusing and misusing technology. We tap our devices over 2,600 times a day. We look at our phones every 12 minutes. You know, we would rather email or text than pick up a phone call. Mm-hmm. Even my mom, my mom is just turned 70 and she's, mm-hmm. she even admits she's, this is her favorite book back to human because she can actually have a conversation with it, uh, with her friends. Mm-hmm. So like she'll say, Oh yeah, my son's working on a book called back to human. And they'll say, what is that? Like a sci-fi <laughs> movie? Like what's going on? Right. And then she'll look, she'll just say the next word phones yeah. and they get it immediately because everyone is dealing with this now, regardless of age. Right. But yeah, well, I think yeah, with, I think younger generations deal with the most because we grew up with it. If you're born today, mm. you're part of generation alpha, yeah. which means you will never hold a phone that can't take a picture. Yeah. 
you you'll never know what Blockbuster Video as a Toys R Us is. Yeah. You know, the companies that you'll most associate with might be Uber and Amazon and Facebook and Apple. Sure. Yeah. So like your view of the world is going to be completely different. You talk about worldview and culture, you know, technology is part of culture. You know, in China, oh. they they have a zombie lane, like an additional sidewalk for people who just look down at their phones because yeah. they have hundreds of millions of people who have smartphones and that's right. what they do. And they don't want them to get killed because of cars walking on the road. <laughs> yeah, I've heard another example from uh, um, that comes from Germany on zebra crossing, pedestrian crossings, which yeah. normally are like black, white, black, white, you know, the, the, the striped zebra, where they put um, uh, LED LED lights in green or red in the ground. They've put it in the ground because people, that's where their eyes are. Their eyes are not straightforward like I'm looking at you now, uh, but they're they're looking down at their phone. So and then they they actually they get warned earlier than looking at the pedestrian light, which they have to look up for. So now they look down and they can actually still see whether it's red or green. It's um well it's, yeah the, uh, the it's other the other example though. out of Germany is Daimler, the car company. Uh-huh. They have a program called Mail on Holiday. Uh-huh. Where if you email an employee on, when they're on vacation, your email is automatically deleted, which creates the behavior that you give people space and mm-hmm. time to rest. Okay, yeah, that's that's an interesting concept as well. Uh, well, and, and in France, France they have the right to disconnect. Yeah, which means after work hours, you need to leave workers alone. There was actually a company that's uh, based in Ireland, but has employees in. France mm-hmm. and they were emailing after work hours and they yeah. just got fined a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read that example in your book, uh, in your book as well. And uh, a colleague of mine, a, an ex colleague of mine, she, she would go on holiday and then she would come back and she would just delete everything that was in her inbox. This is like 10 years ago. Uh, she would delete everything in her inbox. Uh, and then she would say, she would look at me. And I was wondering, what are you doing? And she said, well, if it's important, they'll mail again. You know, and or they call me sure. or or something like that. Now, yeah, and I, I'd I, love to touch on email too. Okay, uh, email was a big thing that came out of the book. If you want to go through that, or you want to, um, well, Google. there's there's a bit. Okay, just um, I'm going to write that down. Email that we can talk about that as well because I just want to um, get back to you made your career through technology, right? Now there's there are tons of people, or there's this movement, if you want, to think or say that technology is going to save us from ourselves, from our own disasters. Right, because we create disaster. We only create nuclear bombs that can create can can destroy all of us. Um, is is where do you stand on this? There is such a focus. I mean, technology has helped us so much in terms of of invention of smartphones, in terms of invention of LED lights, uh, electric cars, self driving cars. I don't know. You could go on and on and on. Is technology to blame for everything, or where do you stand on this on this balance? I don't know. I describe it the way the 100 leaders featured in my book describe it. It's a double-edged sword. It's how you're using it. There's good and bad. It's like the good, everything you just said is is great, right? Right. Because it's made our culture more transparent whether leaders and government officials want it or not. Like the Me Too movement wouldn't have happened without technology. Yeah. That couldn't technology have been has that re- big. Technology has revealed some of the shortcomings in society. Right. That's really what – and, you know, it's promoted hate, but it's also promoted love. So that's a double-edged sword too, exactly. right? Uh, but but what I'm talking about in the book is that technology has created the illusion of connection and even yeah. friendship when in reality people feel more isolated and lonely over the overuse and misuse of it. We think we are so connected, but how strong really are these relationships? Like yeah. there was a great study 
that I couldn't even sneak in the book. Sadly, it was too late. It was okay. uh, if you have an average of 150 Facebook friends, mm-hmm. only three you can rely on at a time of an, an emotional crisis. Yeah, and that is friendship. Yeah. yeah, if you're in the hospital and someone calls you, that's a real friend because they really care exactly. about you. It's yeah. not just about, you know, can this person do me a favor? It's, hey, this person matters to me, so I'm going to put the extra effort in to make sure he or she knows that I'm there for them. True. That makes sense. Yes. You wanted to say something about emails. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so this is one of the biggest findings in the study okay. and other research that I've done is we would much rather email than have a face-to-face conversation, yet one face-to-face conversation is more successful than 34 emails back and forth. Okay. Is that, is that, 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 those are averages, right? Are, so, yeah. So the second, the study I just mentioned comes from the Harvard Business Review and mm-hmm. the research I did for the book with Virgin found that email is what pr- people prioritize the most when it comes to technology over face-to-face in the workplace. Okay. Because it's, we, we, I think technology in a sense has made us, it's really about convenience, okay. right? Yeah. We want things when we want them. We want, you know, groceries to be delivered to us. We want to shout into Alexa to order something for us. Convenience is what matters. And and convenience, like audio, you know, allows us to do multiple things at once or we think we can do multiple things at once. Yeah. Uber, it's convenience. I don't want to wait for a cab to go by. I want to just press a button and get a ca- and get a car yeah. to go somewhere. So yeah. But it's also that's also made us lazy. Like there, there is no memorization anymore in the UK. Uh, kids don't even know how to hold a pencil. So we can look at that as positives or negatives, sure. or just the state of a state of being. But it's it's impacting the culture in in many 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 ways. And so I think through the book, you especially in the introduction, you see how it's impacting. Like Japan is monstrous. It t- technology is isolating people in Japan to a point where they're going to lose over 40 million people from their population by 2060. There are now more deaths than births mm-hmm. in Japan mm-hmm. and over 40,000 people die because of loneliness. Okay. Uh, and in the UK, the UK is one of the mo- most interesting places right now when it okay. comes to this. Uh, so here are the stats in the UK. Okay, go ahead. Over 9 million people feel lonely in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the US, about half of people feel lonely at least sometimes. Uh, so in the UK, uh, over 200,000 grown adults haven't t- talked to a close friend or relative in the past month. Mm. And loneliness costs the uh, corporations in total annually in the UK mm. over 2.5 billion pounds. Yeah. And so th- now there's a minister of loneliness that was appointed to handle the, handle the problem. And a lot of this is driven by technology yeah. because we didn't have technology like this 20 years ago. We never talked yeah. about loneliness 20 years ago, right? Not, not, so like, not at that level, no. Certainly not. So at this, at this level, it's like, Technology is getting us connected, but what the main message in the book is let technology be a bridge to human connection, not a barrier. Mm. Let it lead to the human interactions in the workplace. So, Use technology to schedule a meeting with someone else, but when you're in the meeting, don't look at your cell phone. Be present with that person. In the subway in New York or, or walking down the street anywhere, you know, you can be physically around people, but not yeah. mentally, spiritually, or emotionally. Sure. sure. Now there's there are um what I use in in when I talk to people when I talk to clients uh coach clients uh and give lectures and, and workshops etc I use a model of culture which uses four primary cultural dimensions um example one of them is hierarchy so some countries have a high hierarchy example France relatively low hierarchy is the United States compared to France now um the second dimension is individualism 
Uh, and what you see that all over the world, there are very few exceptions. Two countries seem to be an exception to the rule is that the whole world seems to be getting more individualistic. So we're going much more to me, me, me. Um, if when, when, when you and I were young, you know, when we would, if we would be friends, if we would have a fight, how would we solve that fight? Well, we would go outside and we would literally fight. That was a real literal fight that we would have. What do we do nowadays? I either block you or I unfriend you. I don't even have to physically fight with you anymore. Now, isn't that globally a general trend that technology is, um, it's a chicken and the egg, but, um, is the, the, the growing individualism of the world, isn't that also part of this, this growing isolation that you see happening all over Agreed. the world? Yeah. Well, it's convenience. Like I was saying before, it's more convenient to send a text or to unfollow than actually have to confront your problems. Okay. Whether you're at home or you're in the workplace, you know, some things could be good to do via text. So like if you're trying to remind someone that you, you need to meet them in a specific place, uh-huh. send a text. Yeah. But if you're in an argument with a coworker, 20 text messages with 50,000 emojis is not going to do anything for no. you. No, no, no. You know, because because with with written words, people can infer things differently and there could be a misunderstanding, which right. hurts relationships. Yeah. Whereas all you have to do is meet with someone individually or meet as a team and sort things out. It's just much more efficient and more human. And people want to bring their full human into the workplace. So okay. if they have problems at home, those problems are going to come to the workplace. If they don't get along with their manager or their coworkers, those problems are going to go into their home. You know, when I interviewed Richard Branson last year, he said, if you have a lot of friends outside of the workplace, you should have an equal amount of friends in the workplace because we're working so many hours. Work is a third of our life. And in, especially in the United States, the average work week is not 40 hours a week. It's 47 mm-hmm. hours a week on average. Yeah. And, and we're always on call. Yeah. Not uh, the new vacation is not having your cell phone. Yeah. Because the second you have that technology, you feel guilted into responding. You're, right. You might be curious or have a have FOMO and and you can be taken advantage of. And that's why that's why you're seeing a lot of labor restrictions come from, you know, France and, yeah. and Germany and other places. I think a lot of people can relate to this example. You know, we're going to a restaurant. We're like five or six people uh, and everybody's got this cell phone. Right next to them. Mine is actually not on silent even. Now it is. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I've, and, and I'm the only one who actually read your book. Suppose I'm the only one that read your book. And I think, guys, we're going to, the six of us or the eight of us, it, it's more than the two of us. It's a little bit larger of a group in this case. I'd like to, for everybody, I, I'm convinced, right? I want to put the phone down. I'm actually, I'm not even taking it with me. Right. So it's, I've left it at home. How do I convince all the other guys and girls to say, put this thing away? Don't look at the phone. Shall we have a conversation with all of us rather than, you know, you and I having a, a bit of a conversation? Then you're checking your, your WhatsApp or whatever, Instagram. How do you, how do you do this? Yeah. The thing about technology is that it almost forces you to use it because everyone else is using it and you don't want to be left out of mm-hmm. it quote unquote, important conversations. But I think in order to make change in the world in any way possible, it starts with you. So you need to change your behavior. And then if someone sees what you're doing and likes what you're doing, or if you loan the book to someone else or, or explain it to them, then Mm -hmm. they could change. They might not change. Um, But I think the sooner the better, because Mm -hmm. it's not like we're going to have less technology in 20 years. It's not like, you know, we're not going to have to work side by side with robots in 30 years. It's going to, I mean, it's going to happen. Right. And so we did a whole study with Oracle about this and 
it's pretty interesting. Over 90% of workers in the United States would take orders from a robot. Uh-huh. So we're getting used to working with robots. And actually, this is some other funny study about how, you know, if little if little kids are, are managed by like mean robots or, or have have to deal with mean robots, yeah. they're more likely to like do their chores. Uh-huh. So like it's interesting. Yeah. And we're and getting is, we're getting is this used only in to the it. United States or is this typically in a country like Japan or Tanzania or I I view Japan as looking out into the future of what our world could be. Right. That's that's how I always look at it. As in as in let Japan be a warning sign for the right. rest of the world. Japan, my books were number 1 in Japan, the last two. I mean, uh, really big in Japan and so I hope they get this one because yeah. it's already going to be in China and Singapore and all these other countries, but I think Japan needs this the most. I mean, right. just just looking at what's happening there, it's it really uh it's really sad because it's a it's a big population hit for sure. them. And yeah. and they have such a labor shortage, so it's interesting because in Instead of promoting human connection in Japan, mm-hmm. they're now trying to bring on more artificial intelligence to right. fill their labor shortage. Yep. So they're they're trying to like do a, a quick move to, or somewhat quick move to to solve their big cultural issue mm-hmm. and not thinking long term. And I think that's a big problem because they know the numbers. They know long term that they're losing their population. It's unhealthy and they're going to have huge issues because they have such an older population there. Yeah. True, 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 true. Um, what is the most the 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 um, most surprising thing that came out of your research? Nice, love this. So, this is really fascinating because I've worked from home for eight years, uh-huh. and everyone talks about the light side of working remote. You get freedom and flexibility. You can mm-hmm. work when, where, and how you want from wherever in the world, right? Yeah. No one talks about the dark side, which is isolation, which mm-hmm. creates loneliness. Yeah. And so what we found in the book is if you work remote, yeah. you're much less likely to want to long-term create your company. So you become less loyal and committed to the team and organization's success as a result of working from home. Okay. Because if you don't see or hear someone for an extended period of time, you don't feel like you're a part of something. Right. You're disconnected from them. So even though it might seem good, there's a hidden issue that you're experiencing mm-hmm. and you're more likely to search for work elsewhere. And I think that that was the biggest finding and I can relate it to it the most, right? If I didn't see my business partners or my team for an extended period for like a year, it's yeah, over. Of course. Right? I'm gone. Yeah. Because because that connection is so important. And, you know, Gallup's done research on, you know, friends and best friends. If you have friends, especially best friends, you're more likely to be productive and committed. And it makes sense. It's much easier to leave mm-hmm. an acquaintance than someone who you have a real strong connection sure. with because then you might be leaving like a family member or friend and and it's harder to do that. Right. It's like hard to break up with a girl or guy for that reason. Yeah, yeah, right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's a, it's been a very, uh, interesting conversation. Uh, back to human Dan Chabelle. Am you I, nailed it. I'm am proud I of you. close? Okay. Good. You, you um, it was, doesn't, it's not going to get too much better than that. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, two questions remain, uh, Dan, if I may. Can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent, please? Yes. Tip number one yeah. is to make sure you travel to at least one new country every year. This year was Costa Rica. Last year I did uh, Greece and Paris. Uh, so I, it's, you know, we have professional goals. We uh-huh. put professional things on our calendars. I think it's time to put personal goals and block out personal time on our calendars as well. Because yeah. we live in a, in a work-life integration world. The balance is a myth. It doesn't really happen. Mm. So we have to adjust to that new world and take responsibility and be accountable for it. Uh, number two, put yourself... Uh, in a unique situation with unique people, meaning that 
if you always hang out in certain groups, try and go to a different group. For me, I go to, you know, while I go to in part of the Jewish community, I also am very involved in the entrepreneur world and I also am in the creative space. Uh -huh. And what I find really interesting, what I've done is I've, I've become more culturally aware and created that scenario for others because I'll have a get together and invite people from all different walks of life. So I'm facilitating and curating the, those experiences yeah. to make all of them more cultural. Mm -hmm. And then I think the third thing I would say is, is read outside of your normal scope. Meaning that most people just want to follow news and people uh, of who agree with their beliefs. Yeah. And I think you need to find people who go counter to your beliefs, right? So if politically, let's say you're a Republican or Democrat and you're yep. only following people who share those beliefs, mm -hmm. you're not going to be as cultured naturally. So yeah. I think you need to challenge yourself to look at multiple sources and the truth comes from reading multiple sources and coming up with your own opinion instead mm -hmm. of taking anything at face value because there's so much corruption in this world mm -hmm. that if you take something at face value from one source that's biased, mm -hmm. you're going to oh, be yeah. very misled and it's going to affect you personally and Absolutely. the people around you. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Last question then, Dan. How can people reach you? You can reach me at danshawbell.com. So it's D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. Okay. Right. And then I host the five questions with Dan Shawbell podcast where I interview the world's leading successful people and most interesting people by asking them five questions in under 10 minutes. So it's right. the podcast you listen to between breaks at work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, books on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, UK, US, you name it. Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. You know, the goal is to use the book as a reminder that you should have more face-to-face -face mm -hmm. interactions in your life because those build the strongest relationships, which right. lead to happiness and strong business outcomes. Eventually, yes. Great. Okay, fantastic. I enjoyed the book. Thank you so much. I made some good notes, uh, some stuff that I'm going to actually borrow from you. Um, some good, some great ideas, some good ideas there. Love it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, thanks again uh, for your time. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. You got it, my friend. I appreciate the support. Okay, my pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Dan, again for your time. You can see the video cast of this recording, plus the uh, the cover of the book, of course, when you go to culturematters.com slash YouTube, and you will find the video right there. You can also subscribe to my podcast, which I would really appreciate. And while you're at it, why don't you leave an iTunes review? review. The more, the better, and the more people will get eventually access to this. Do remember that culture matters. And finally, that this episode was uh, produced by Janice Sheila and the music was by Ben Sound. I'm Chris Smith and this was the Culture Matters Podcast. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.